This message by Bill Kittrell was recorded during a Sunday celebration service for Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Bill serves as a senior pastor on staff at Cornerstone Church. Please open in your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 2. We're in a series on the book of Acts. Today we'll be in chapter 2. We're going to look closely at verses 22 through 41, the second part of Peter's sermon. We looked at the first part last Sunday. I'm going to start reading in verse 21, just to set the stage for this, and then read the rest of these verses. This is God's Word. It is inerrant. It is inspired. It's given to us for edification this morning. It's the highlight of our time together. Acts chapter 2, verse 21, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders, and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. And therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. 
For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Verse 37, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. And with many other words He bore witness and continued to exhort them saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received His word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. This Jesus is Lord in Christ. This Jesus, receive Him, worship Him. Save yourselves from this world. Father, I pray for Your Word to prosper in our midst. I pray for thousands to be saved. I pray for You to call us to Yourselves for Your glory. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, like most of you, I've seen a lot of open-air preaching in my day. Most of it did more harm than good. In fact, when we started our campus ministry, we almost got thrown off campus for open-air preaching. We didn't see how we could obey man and, and stop open-air preaching, even though it was disturbing the classes. I, I ended up meeting with the Dean of Student Affairs and decided it was a good thing to obey man. And so we're still on campus. But it isn't uncommon to, to hear people preaching on the street who clearly don't understand the gospel message. They seem to even lack grace for public communication. Preaching isn't easy in any setting, but what Peter was doing that day, the day of Pentecost is much more challenging than any other kind of preaching. I, I've never been the preacher in an open-air setting. I was always too scared to do that. But I have done a lot of assisting others who were fairly good at it, actually. And I have seen it done well. What it requires is it, it requires courage. It requires boldness. You need self-control because people are heckling you. You need a strong voice. you got to have an ability to teach. 
You've got to have wisdom. The point is, is Peter was exceptional. <laughs> don't, don't miss how effective his sermon was. Open-air preaching. Wasn't any easier then. In fact, it was probably more challenging. And when he was done, 3,000 people were added to the church. His, his sermon was an explanation. It was the day of Pentecost. We looked at it last week, and it was a miraculous moment. So it was a unique message, and he was trying to explain to everybody, this is God's doing. God is at work. This is not a bunch of individuals who have been drinking early in the morning. This is revival. This is an outpouring of the Spirit. In Acts chapter 1, Luke, the author of Acts, has prepared us for Acts chapter 2. Notice that his description of the coming of the Spirit in verses 4, 1 through 4 is very brief. The, the, the coming of the Spirit took place in front of Jews from every nation. All the places where they, where they had been dispersed to. And, and many of the nations where the disciples would be going with the gospel. And in, in this sermon, Peter is explaining to them what is happening. He's, he's explaining it's a fulfillment of prophecy, but he is also a prophet. He's been filled with the Spirit. And the real cause of this moment, the reason this has taken place, is because of the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ, the Jewish Messiah. He's at the right hand of God. He is the King of kings. He is sovereign in power. And the Lord has proven this. He has vindicated Him. And so Peter is clarifying many things for those watching, hearing, seeing, what you're seeing, what you're hearing. And he's explaining to them the significance of Jesus Christ in the plan of God for His people. It's a significant sermon, and that's why Luke is included. And we want to unpack this second part of the sermon. Zach walked us through very effectively last week, the initial outpouring of the Spirit in the first part of the sermon. And today, we want to look at this second part. What's this sermon have to say to us? Verse 21 is the end of Joel's prophecy. It shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That's what this sermon is about. That's what this text is about. The salvation of sinful men and women. Peter's audience have acted blindly against their own best interest. In the sermon at the end, they, they recognize this. It's designed to produce that response. Repentance. It's a call for repentance. In verse 40, Luke says, with many other words, Peter bore witness 
and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. This is an abbreviated version of the sermon. With many other words, he exhorted them. In verse 41, those who received his words were baptized. 3,000 people joined the church that day. The Spirit unites them into a new fellowship. In a couple weeks, we will look at this in verses 42 and following at the end of the chapter. 3,000 people built together to the church. That's the work of the Spirit. That's what these people are seeing and observing. 3,000 people, scholars said, say that, that that was a distinct minority of the crowd. They're in the temple precincts, and it's packed. 3,000 people was a small number. But certainly, what they were seeing and hearing was the risen Lord continuing to act through His Spirit in the church convicting people, mass baptisms over the next few days. I, I was baptized at a Jesus festival with thousands of people there. People ask me if I've seen this movie, The Jesus Revolution. They're like, I was there, man. Peter bore witness as he preached. He warned them. He exhorted them. He sought to persuade them. He pleaded with his audience. Save yourselves from this crooked, perverse, unbelieving generation that killed the Messiah. He's coming again. He's bringing the judgment of God. He is the King of kings and the end will come. But today is the day of salvation. Save yourselves. People need to be saved. One commentator, David Peterson, says this, those who want to be saved from the judgment of God need to distance themselves from their generation and identify with Jesus and His cause. Later generations have not had the same opportunity to see and hear Christ directly. But it remains true that people in every age need to take a stand against their generation in its rejection of Jesus and His message. They need to know about the consequence of persisting in unbelief and rebellion against God. Authentic gospel Proclamation. That's what we're going to learn about as we study Acts so that we can be faithful. Authentic gospel proclamation will communicate the challenge to take this step and be saved from the approaching judgment of God by calling upon the name of Jesus for deliverance. There is no other name that can save you. So you should listen carefully to my sermon today about Peter's sermon. We can can learn certain priorities for our preaching and for our mission as God's people from this sermon. Number one, notice Peter's sermon is about salvation. 
Luke has included this sermon intentionally, and he includes a number of sermons intentionally. They are inspired sermons, and they are preserved for us in Scripture. They are part of unique revelation God has given us. They lay the foundation for our faith. They reveal to us what the gospel is, our message, the, the theology of these sermons, the truths that the Bible presents. Always make the evangelism of the church in every age and culture effective. We don't have to change it. The theology of these sermons is what makes our evangelism powerful. The gospel in essence, is a call to be saved. Everyone, Joel said, calls upon the name of the Lord, shall be saved. These, these are the last words from this critical prophecy that's fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. And Peter is springboarding from that fulfilled prophecy into his sermon and with many other words, verse 40, he, he bore witness and exhorted them, save yourselves from this crooked generation. That's the mission of the church. Bring salvation to our generation. That's our mission. Verse 23, this, this Jesus, this Jesus delivered up according to thee definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. That's the gospel. God's plan. Jesus killed our sins, counted as His. His righteousness counted as ours. Brothers, what shall we do? Verse 37, they're calling on the name of the Lord. They're convicted by the preaching of the gospel. They realize they need to be saved. And verse 39 says, actually what's going on is God is on a quest for them. He's calling them to Himself. And through Peter's sermon, they discover they've been stubborn. They've been foolish. They're cut to the heart. They're convicted. Up until that point, they hadn't seen that they had killed their Messiah. But through the preaching of the Gospel, they see it. Peter is Spirit-filled. This is Spirit-filled preaching that we are reading. Spirit-filled preaching. So let's pause and make sure that as a church, as individuals, that, that we are cautious. We are careful about our mission. We want to beware of any mission that doesn't have salvation at its core. That's not Jesus' mission. What is your mission? Regardless of where we serve, 
Calling people to repentance is always part of the mission. No matter what we do, we want to make sure our ministry as a local church includes a call to repentance and faith. As we go through Acts, you're going to see they never get away from this. Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 1, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's why He came. And if you're discerning, you will notice that this, this mission doesn't sell as well in our culture as other missions. Our culture doesn't want to be told that they need to be saved. They, want to, they don't want to be told that Christ is Lord and He is returning and He will be the judge. They don't want to be told that. But Jesus said in Mark 8, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? So if we give people the whole world but neglect to preach the gospel to them and lead them to Christ for salvation, it doesn't profit anyone. Repentance is part of our task, part of our mission. That's why Peter said in verse 38, repent. Be baptized in the name of Jesus. You rejected him. You killed him. Now you identify with him in baptism and confess his name. They had to repent. They're not in a good place in their relationship with the exalted Lord. And so what they're being asked to repent of is their view of Jesus Christ, of their attitude, their relationship to him. He is the only Savior from the coming judgment. And, and repentance means you've got to change your mind about Jesus. And that's what the church must preach. That's their responsibility. It's a, it's a human responsibility. It's also a gift from God. you got to get comfortable with these two things. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. As many as God draws to Himself. Calls to Himself. The Bible teaches both of these. Teaches both of them in our text. We need to hold on to our responsibility and God's work. They go together. They always do. Second thing we can learn about our preaching and mission from this sermon, it's about this Jesus. Verse 23, this Jesus. Delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Verse 32, this Jesus God raised up. And of that, we all are witnesses. Verse 36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Him, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. At the center of this sermon 
explaining the outpouring of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. At the center is our understanding of Christ, what theologians call Christology, as opposed to pneumatology, the study of the Spirit. The focus is on Christ. It's a Spirit-filled sermon. The day of Pentecost, explaining the outpouring of the Spirit, and it's about who Jesus is. It's about what He has done. It's about the glorified Messiah. Jesus had spent 40 days with His disciples. We read about it in both of Luke's volumes, Luke 24 and Acts 1. Apparently, This sermon comes from his teaching. This is what he had been talking to him about. Peter had learned how to preach a sermon. <laughs> Forty days with the resurrected Christ. This is what you're going to preach. This is your mission. Men of Israel, verse 22, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, this Jesus, a man attested to you by God with mighty works, wonders, and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, he did mighty works of power. He's preaching to the men of Israel, the ones that were there, the ones that crucified him and killed him. They were there. They saw mighty works of power. That works that revealed him as sovereign, as powerful, as king of the kingdom, as the king of kings. They saw wonders that amazed them. Wonders that pointed to his character, pointed to his significance. They saw signs. God, God did these things through him, Peter says, in your midst. You know. The evidence was compelling, and yet they killed him. Verse 23. It was the plan of God, but you crucified and killed him. It was the predetermined plan of God. His focus is on the suffering of the Messiah. It was revealed in advance in the Old Testament. And, and the focus is on this because the focus in Acts is on the offer of forgiveness because this was God's plan to redeem His people. To offer His only Son. You crucified and killed Jesus by the hands of lawless men. Everybody's responsible. They're being called to account, but they're being given a second chance. They're being offered forgiveness. Later sermons in Acts never say to the Jewish people, you killed Jesus. Just these Jews in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. These were the Jews 
they killed Jesus. We should not say to Jewish people today, you killed Jesus. In her book, People Love Dead Jews, Dara Horn, who's an author and a teacher of Jewish literature at Harvard, she said, I first discovered this at the age of 17, which what she discovered will become clear, in the most trivial of moments at an academic quiz bowl tournament in Nashville, Tennessee, where as the only girl from my New Jersey high school, I shared a hotel room with two girls from Mississippi. We were strangers and competitors pretending to be friends. One night we stayed up late chatting about our favorite childhood TV shows, about how we had each believed that Mr. Rogers was personally addressing us through the screen. We laughed together until one girl said, it's like Jesus. Even if he didn't know my name when he was dying on the cross, I still know he loved me. And if he knew my name, he would have loved me too. The other girl squealed, I know, right? It's just like Jesus. Then the two of them, full of messianic joy, looked at me. I said nothing, a very loud nothing. The girls waited, uncomfortable, till one braved the silence. It seems like people up north are much less religious. How often do you go to church? So happened that I was very religious. My family attended synagogue services weekly, or even more often than that, my parents were volunteer lay leaders in our congregation, and I had a job chanting publicly from the Torah, the law, scroll, for the children's congregation every Saturday morning, the Sabbath, which effectively meant that I knew large parts of the five books of Moses in the original Hebrew by heart. On Sundays, I spent four hours learning ancient Jewish legal texts at a program for teenagers at a rabbinical school in New York, and from 8 to 10 p.m. every Tuesday and Thursday, I studied Hebrew language in a local adult education class, those poor girls in Nashville. My public school closed for all these uh, Jewish holidays. I can't pronounce any of them. I read works of Jewish philosophy for fun. All of this and more required an enormous amount of countercultural effort, education, and commitment on the part of my family that vastly exceeded merely going to church. But I sensed that this, this being the central pillar of my experience as a human being, was irrelevant to the question these girls were asking me. I mumbled something about a synagogue and tried to think of a way to steer us back to Mr. Rogers. But now the girls were staring at me, gaping in disbelief. You, one of the girls stammered, you, you have blonde hair. Cringeworthy. The second girl inspected me, squinting at my face in a way that made me wonder if I had acne. And what color are your eyes? Blue, I said. First girl said, I thought Hitler said you all were dark. In retrospect, I can imagine many ways I might have felt about this statement, but at the time I was only baffled. I pictured my hand on the quiz bowl buzzer I'd been pounding all week and provided the correct answer. Hitler was full of, I'll say, baloney. After a pause that lasted an eternity, one girl meekly offered, I guess you're kind of right. 
Kind of. The other girl doubled down, demanding an explanation for my eye color if I were from the Middle East. But I was done being nice. If being nice meant defending my own face. I left the room confused. And that night I blurted to my mother from a hotel payphone, I don't get it. These girls made it to the nationals. These are the smart people, and they're getting their information from Hitler? My mother sighed a long, tired sigh. I know, she said, without elaborating, I know. My mother was the age then that I am now, and now I know too. Man, I wanted to read that to you, so you never shame the Lord Jesus Christ like that. The Apostle Paul would say to these girls, you don't know Christ. I went to a concentration camp in Germany a few years ago, Sherry and I did, and saw the showers where they herded Jewish people into the showers and instead of turning on water, turned on gas and murdered thousands and thousands of people. And there was a man in my tour group who asked about Holocaust deniers and ask about how they could know the Holocaust was real. And the tour guide wouldn't answer the question because it's illegal to ask it in Germany. The only explanation for the hatred for Jews, including denying that this hatred exists, is Satan. It's the work of Satan. It is unjustified to blame other Jews for the death of Jesus Christ. Verse 24, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. David in Psalm 16, which we're going to look at on Easter Sunday, foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. That he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Verse 32, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. He is preaching to those who killed him, who handed him over to lawless men. He had instructed his disciples to go to Jerusalem, receive power, and be his witnesses. That's exactly what we're supposed to do. They spent 40 days with God the Son incarnate, raised bodily from the grave. And now we're hearing them preach with boldness and courage and clarity the good news, offering forgiveness to the ones that killed him. This Jesus, that's what we're supposed to preach. Verse 36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified, know for certain God has vindicated Him. He's raised Him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. That's the one we're to call on. This Jesus. Finally, Peter's sermon 
explains the work of the Spirit. You need discernment if you're going to be able to understand, recognize, and explain the work of the Spirit. Peter's sermon does this for us. In, in the book of Acts, the risen Lord Jesus Christ is still very much active. He has ascended to the right hand of the Father. He is reigning. He is ruling over His people. Remember in Acts 2 when the Spirit came, there's a, there's a noise from heaven. The Spirit is being sent by Him. And, and Peter's people are asking about it. And he's explaining it and imparting discernment to us. This is how you know a work of the Spirit. Verse 47, the Lord added to their number day by day. Those who are being saved. People are being saved. The Lord Jesus is continuing to act. He's the Lord that sits at the right hand of the Father. He's adding believers. He's building His church. That's what He said He was going to do when He was with His disciples before His crucifixion. I'm going to build my church. Now in Acts chapter 2, He's building His church. He's saving people. He's adding them to the church. People are converted. The church grows. It's built up. It's edified. It's filled with the Spirit. This is what you are seeing. This is what you are hearing. We need to be able to discern this. You heard a, a testimony from Victoria. She learned that Jesus doesn't pursue people because He's unaware of their baggage. <laughs> no. He calls them to Himself to free them from their baggage. We heard numerous testimonies at Vision Quest. And give it up for me for surviving another Vision Quest. It's a miracle. It's really a miracle. Ashley Rack, many of you know Ashley, her family's just a wonderful part of our church and she shared about her illness. If you've been around a while, you remember praying for Ashley. It was a highlight for me when Ashley was giving her testimony because I remember how much we prayed for her. Now, I didn't know she was going to make it. And there she was, healthy. Praising God for His faithfulness. Zach Runyon shared about Serious struggles with fear, anxiety, and panic attacks. And I thought, Zach, you and I need to hang out, man. we got a lot to talk about. And at VFC one night, he came to Christ. He remembers singing, I was an orphan lost at the fall. It's the only song they know, I think. I was an orphan, lost as a fall, running away when I heard your call. He came to Christ when God called him to himself, just like in the book of Acts. So you can discern 
a work of the Spirit. I believe, I am convinced, the Spirit's at work in VFC. The, the risen Lord Jesus is still active. He's still powerful. He's still saving people. He's still adding them to the church. That's what you're seeing, and that's what you're hearing. Victoria is battling shame, and she comes to church. that's having a class on shame? That's what you're seeing and hearing. Jesus ascended into heaven. He poured out the Spirit on the church as promised. The Spirit is poured out on this church. You can see God's work if you're discerning. That's one of the things I love to do is point out, you know, that God's at work in your life. The Spirit is given to minister the, these benefits of Jesus' saving worth to believers. Forgiveness and peace and joy, freedom, liberty. And all this is going to be seen when we look at the church in verses 42 through 47 in a couple weeks. The promise is for you, it's for your children, it's for all those who are far off. That's us. This Jesus is Lord in Christ. Receive Him. Worship Him. Save yourself from this crooked generation, from this world. Peter's sermon is very carefully constructed. He has a main point. It's in verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. He is Lord and Christ. Verse 22. Jesus of Nazareth. A man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs. His life, his teaching were tested by God. Verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed. His death was purposed by God. It was God's plan. Verse 24, God raised him up. It wasn't possible for death to hold him. His resurrection was accomplished by God. The biblical logic here of what Peter is saying is clear, it's compelling, it's great news. He's taught about the day of judgment, and now he's offering. Forgiveness in this day of salvation. They had crucified their only hope. Their only hope is the one they have crucified. There was hope for them, and there's hope for us this morning. I want to invite the worship team to come back up.
And this is the second Sunday of the month, and we're going to enjoy what we call Second Sunday Ministry. We have some prayer teams, if they would come up, a pastor, and some folks in our congregation are going to be up here to pray for you. Please stand. We're going to return to singing, but while we're singing, I want to invite you to come and be prayed for. For some of you, this is the day of salvation, and you need to come and receive Christ and repent of your sins and be saved. Some of you, there can be many things we can pray for you. And we like to use this opportunity to make unhurried time for the Holy Spirit to work. And the Spirit is present with us today. So I trust that He will encourage you to come and be prayed for. Father, we thank You for Your Word. Thank You for Your promised Spirit. Lord, we do see You at work in our midst. And Lord, today we pause and humble ourselves and give you thanks. Thank you, Lord, for all these gifts, for all these good things. We all are trophies of grace. Thank you for these testimonies, Lord. Thank you for how you're at work in people's lives. And now we pray, Lord, for this ministry time. Pray that as folks come to be prayed for, that you would answer our prayers and do your signs and wonders and miracles for your glory alone, in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message given by Bill Kittrell during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. To find out more about Cornerstone Church of Knoxville, visit us at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com or call our church office at 865-694-4356. We'd love to have you join us in our mission to treasure, grow in, and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ.